everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat with Dr. Andre Ostrovsky, who is the former chief medical officer of the U.S. Medicaid program. The Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services is the nation's largest health insurer, and there, Dr. Ostrovsky advocated to protect the program against several legislative efforts to dismantle the program. He is now the managing partner at Social Innovation Ventures, where he invests in and advises companies and nonprofits dedicated to eliminating disparities. He also advises federal and state regulators on how to incorporate human-centered design into policymaking. Previously, he operated a series of methadone clinics in Baltimore, and before leading the Medicaid program, he co-founded and successfully sold the software company Care at Hand. Prior to that, Dr. Ostrovsky led teams at the WHO, the U.S. Senate, and the San Francisco Health Department. Hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thanks for joining us today, Andre. Super excited to host you on the Pulse podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for starters, tell us a little bit more about your journey into healthcare, and specifically, why do you care so much about working with vulnerable populations? My journey started as a Jewish immigrant that was given the option of doctor, lawyer, engineer, as expectations being set as a child. And I liked kids. I liked coaching basketball with little kids. So pediatrics seemed like a good fit. And ever since late middle school, early high school, thought that was a logical route to go. Did the usual pre-med thing and medical school thing. And then halfway into medical school, realized that the systems in serving patients were quite broken and the root causes of what led a lot of the kids that I was treating as a, or treating, uh, watching other people treat as a med student, those root causes weren't really fixable by clinician actions. And as a result of that, I decided to take a year off from med school and go to San Francisco to try to learn more about systems and how health systems worked, which I'm happy to elaborate on, but that's where the journey into healthcare began. The equity focus has always been with me since we came to the United States when I was five years old. I could not name that for a long time until I was a little farther along in my career, but the underpinnings really stemmed from the fact that I had upbringing in West Baltimore City, and then we eventually moved out to the suburbs. But the West Baltimore City upbringing was around other kids who, like me, were growing up in a pretty impoverished area. Those kids were just as smart as I was, probably smarter. They had wonderful families. I loved their parents, their aunties, their grandmas. And I was able to get out of that environment. Not easily. I mean, we worked hard for it, but we, we got out. They didn't get out of that environment. And some of them didn't get out. Some of them didn't live past that environment. And that was mostly a function of the systemic racism and me being a white male, being given pretty much every opportunity there is to succeed. And then they were black males. And (laughs) how is it that they didn't get out and win, even though they were typically smarter, more charismatic, uh, often more driven than I was. So uh, that stuck with me for a while. And Finally, I've been able to be in a position to try to address some of the root causes of that as well. And specifically, when your family first immigrated, as I understand it, you lived in public housing for a few years prior to transitioning 
Can you talk a little bit more about that experience and how that shaped your view of the healthcare innovation ecosystem? Oh, man, I'm not sure how much it helped my <laughs> view of the healthcare system as much as learning how to run real fast. We, uh, um, so we were in Baltimore City, and initially we were in an apartment complex that was right by Druid Hill Park, and then there was another apartment complex right off of Reisterstown Road, for those folks that know Baltimore City, just as Reisterstown Road starts to go up past the city line into the county line. You know, I was very grateful that we had housing. I mean, we came over from a country where we left everything behind, came here literally penniless, and we were able to have housing and not be on the street. We were able to have health insurance coverage, even though we couldn't pay a penny for it. Fortunately, my family and I were relatively healthy, but if we had any kind of, uh, actually, no, we did have a setback. I had a dog, a giant Great Dane when I was five and a half years old. A Great Dane like mauled my face. <laughs> and oh I, I mean, uh, all right, but we didn't pay for that. We couldn't pay for that. If we had to pay for that, we would be, we would be financially catastrophically impacted. And if it wasn't for the Medicaid program, would my parents have still taken me to get stitched? I mean, I'm sure they would have taken me, but like, how would we have paid for that? I, I don't know. So government subsidized housing, government subsidized healthcare, that got us through. And ultimately my parents were able to get themselves to uh, better and better jobs. And we no longer had to depend on subsidized housing or healthcare or food. And then it was that foundation that gave us the springboard to get off that support and help. And that's the springboard, I hope, for every other American that is trying to get on their feet. It was, uh, it, you know, I was very grateful. I remain grateful for that. But it's, you know, living in an area like that, especially where we have oftentimes suboptimal districting of where people live and that are poor and they live in impoverished areas, that doesn't have to be the case. That's suboptimal. That We should have nicely uh, balanced areas where it's not just some wired off or redlined part of the city where the poor live. But, but that, that seemed like it was the case when I was growing up. So that was uh, interesting to get out of that environment. I'm glad we were able to move on. It was challenging. Many families can't move on. They don't have the opportunities to move on. And so I think those experiences translate into what I do now, where I invest, type, the types of founders I invest in, the types of populations that are being served by the founders and the companies that they're starting. Lots of systemic issues to address. Lots of, fortunately, lots of market forces that can be used for good to address those issues. Yeah. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but you had a really interesting word choice. You referenced the Medicaid program as a springboard rather than how it's often referred to as a safety net. So I think that's really interesting because when you think of a springboard, you think of programs that are really empowering people to live their best lives and manage their own health versus safety net, I think perpetuates a lot of misconceptions around Medicare. And the word choice of safety net perpetuates a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions around Medicaid beneficiaries. And in particular, you've in the past stated that Silicon Valley investors are missing a really big opportunity because they don't understand poor people. So what are your recommendations to your fellow investors, entrepreneurs to get familiar with the experience of vulnerable populations? I took a 24-hour stint to try to better immerse myself in understanding exactly the needs of some of the populations I was serving. A couple of years ago, I was running a series of methadone clinics and we had 
good number of patients that were being so-called non-compliant with attending group therapy. Group therapy is one of the more lucrative aspects of running an opioid treatment program. And so we just weren't getting the numbers we needed in order to run a sustainable business. I asked around to my staff what they thought might be some of the reason why folks weren't attending, why weren't they complying with their care plan. We couldn't really get down to the root cause. So I asked around myself, did some Gemba walks, tried to understand, see, hear, feel, smell, like really get down to the bottom, what's going on. And I got the sense that there was an issue around housing insecurity. And so I decided to dig in more deeply and I spent a 24 hour period in air quotes, you know, being homeless, obviously like homelessness for one day has absolutely, they can't compare to real homelessness where you have the uncertainty of where you're actually going to sleep day after day. But that 24 hour period starting off under President Street or 83 South in Baltimore City, waiting half the day in the cold, trying to figure out where I'm going to sleep, not knowing what I would eat, surrounded by people I don't know ultimately getting bussed off to some remote dark spot of East Baltimore city in an abandoned motel room with a bunch of other people and actually getting fed like decent meal and then having a decent cot to sleep on. Although granted my colleague that came with me ended up getting bed bugs, but still like we were actually able to get a place to sleep, but it was cold. It was freezing. It was scary. And by I think 4am my colleague, John and I looked at each other and we were like, yeah, I think we learned enough, like <laughs> tapping out, getting an Uber. And then we Ubered back to the clinic that I was running, ended up getting early breakfast and kind of debriefing about our experience. And so we learned a lot about all of these you know, apps being created and healthcare wellness apps. Like this entire population is never going to touch any of those apps because they were just clamoring for electricity socket to plug their phone in. They were very carefully using their limited burner data plans. They were more worried about where they're going to get their next meal, not about like how many you know, likes they're going to get on Instagram or whatever. So that was instructive, certainly around the use of technology in populations that are housing insecure, but it was even more so instructive about the reason why we went, went on this research experience, which was to inform why people weren't showing up to do group sessions. And it basically came down to the fact that uh, you had to start to get in line by around 12 or 1 p.m. in order to get a spot to sleep that night. And if you didn't, you don't get a place to sleep. And a lot of our group offerings were after noon or after 1 p.m. So we ended up moving the times to much earlier in the day, much higher attendance, much higher revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a lot of analogs there for healthcare investors. And if you think about where investors are coming from, like they're there's not a lot of people that are going through a Warden MBA program that were once homeless. There may be some, but there's not a lot of empathy to connect between what traditional investors are doing and what they've done in the past with populations that really need innovation the most. I don't think all investors have to necessarily go be homeless, but I do think they need to go through exercises to build empathy for populations that they want to create value for. That's assuming they even want to create value for some of these populations. And that's a bigger problem, I think, with society, which is the empathy gap. I don't think that we can fix society per se, but I do think investors are always going to look for better than consensus returns. Investors are always going to find it appealing for an IRR to be in the 30 to 35% range. 
I believe that investing in Medicaid populations, investing in the supply chains that serve the public payer space can yield significantly higher IRR than just typical healthcare investments. And just like you and I were talking, Sandy, like have a look at some of the valuations out there today. You know, one of my portfolio companies, a company you used to work for, CityBlock, multi-billion dollar valuation. Like there is a there there. There is a there. And I'm excited for investors eventually to start investing in the space for the financial gain, but hopefully they'll do it also with a little bit of empathy. Yeah, that's a great segue to my next question around the landscape of tech-enabled innovation and Medicaid. So last week alone, prior to the city block news, there was about $1.2 billion of funding the last seven days alone announced for private digital health companies, many with high valuations. And a lot of these companies are pure SaaS or pure platform as a service plays. They're working for or enabling solutions for commercially insured populations. And you referenced yourself that some of the mainstay problems for vulnerable populations is not about downloading an app and having user engagement. It's where are they going to sleep? Where are they going to get their next meal? So what is the role of technology for vulnerable populations? And why isn't there more investment activity in the space? The role of technology here is, for the most part, not a pure technology play. I've observed that technology-enabled services are more likely to create value for the supply chain serving some of these populations and also more likely to have better prospect as a viable business. The only real exception to that is pure software plays that are targeting backend processes, revenue cycle management, things along those lines. Software that is targeting not back of the house, but front of the house operations or things like care coordination, care management, engagement, communications, those types of solutions I am very bearish on. It's very rare that a company like that will be able to get enough engagement and enough revenue on a unit basis to be a viable standalone software business. Uh, So tech-enabled services and backend processes. And I think there's some really interesting value to be created for these vulnerable populations, primarily by taking traditional brick and mortar businesses. They have too many inefficiencies right now. And those inefficiencies may stem from an inability to flip from fee-for-service to value-based payment. Those inefficiencies may be the inability to compete and grow in new markets where technology can help augment some of the population health management aspects of growing the business. And it could also be some of the cultural competence aspects. There is a role for technology to augment that, but really it has to be on the backbone of a human component. You really can't have empathy that is purely technology driven and empathy and trust especially amongst these populations, but more broadly in healthcare in general, empathy and trust are the big competitive differentiators of one technology solution or one company or service versus another service. So on that note, if empathy and trust require that human element and human interaction, that necessitates that a lot of these businesses will be very people and capital intensive. And so how do you convince your fellow investors that the economics for such a business can work? And I guess the meta question here is, is it possible to marry mission and margin with a social impact venture in Medicaid? 
Great question. So there's this really good book called The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. And the book describes this concept of this pyramid structure whereby within any given population, there's folks at the top of the pyramid, the narrow part, that have high purchasing power. And then there's folks at the middle of the pyramid that have some purchasing power. It's not quite as much purchasing power as the rich, but there's more of them. And then at the bottom of the pyramid is where the vast majority of the population lives. And it's folks that typically have very little discretionary money to spend. And this book and this research highlights how there have been successful businesses built around serving the bottom of the pyramid. And it is that framework and that approach that I think is completely applicable to serving Medicaid beneficiaries, folks in exchange health plan insured populations, Medicare Advantage as well. The Medicare Advantage is really less subject to the purchasing power issue unless they're duals. And so if you think about how there's 70 million Medicaid beneficiaries who have increasingly guaranteed healthcare paid for, they on an individual basis can't pay for insurance, but they're, or can't pay for healthcare, but their insurer will pay for that healthcare. And so if a solution provider can get large enough scale and large enough distribution in serving even a fraction of those 70 million Medicaid bennies or additional 60 million or so Medicare beneficiaries, we're talking about a lot of headcount. And that can turn into a very interesting total addressable market. And the unit economics in and of themselves may not be that attractive, but multiply unit times 60 to 70 million, and it becomes a very interesting potential business. The question becomes how scalably can that be done? At what costs? Technology-enabled service businesses can have a lot of cost because of the service part of the tech-enabled service business. And so while there's still uncertainty and certainly risk, as there is with any business or investing anywhere in healthcare, just the sheer volume of people that need the help can be very appealing. I think a lot of folks have discovered that Medicare Advantage is really low-hanging fruit for building a profitable business. There's a a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that, yes, it's great. Let's have innovators focus on Medicare Advantage populations. Having said that, a lot of the appeal from an investment perspective there is gaming risk adjustment. And our colleagues at CMS very much recognize that that is not a sustainable way to manage the national Medicare program, especially with continuing growth in managed Medicare as opposed to fee-for-service. And so I think that actually is going to set up for a lot more innovation. How can we creatively risk adjust and pay plans more to manage more sick or complex patient populations, but do it in a way that's sustainable and not subject to gamesmanship? And so there's actually some really interesting opportunity for machine learning there, There's a really interesting opportunity for incorporating not just medical comorbidities, but social risk factors into risk adjustment. And that's just one sliver of the healthcare space and and how there's a lot of opportunity for innovation and investment and very interesting returns for investors. It's interesting you point out that MA has so much investor and entrepreneur focus because in many ways, it's the quote unquote more stable of the two markets. If we're considering managed Medicaid versus Medicare, Mm -hmm. But as an investor, if you can find the right successful solutions, you will be adequately compensated for that risk in terms of exit valuations, whatever it is. So 
hopefully there's going to be more movement this year, especially seeing how much city block has grown that it seems to have stirred up more interest in the space. Another macro question for you is around valuations, this very question. So a lot of venture-backed digital health companies today are raising crazy rounds of funding. They are exiting at sky-high valuations. Do you actually think that many of them are addressing the quadruple aim and have evidence of such? Or are they just accelerating healthcare inflation, healthcare disparities, and adding net cost to the ecosystem? There is no data to suggest any correlation between the valuation of health technology businesses and their contribution to the triple aim. There's an analysis in 2013 that my colleagues and I at IHI did that proved no statistically significant correlations. It's not just statistically significant. I mean, there was, it wasn't even trending towards statistically significant. There was a report in November funded by the California Healthcare Foundation that some of my other colleagues and I did looking at the dual supply chain. Again, we did another analysis and we found that very few companies serving the dual space had any peer-reviewed literature published whatsoever. And there's a great study that you and I and one of our colleagues are working on right now looking at publicly traded companies in the healthcare space. And punchline is very few of them have any data, any peer-reviewed data to show that their claims of improving outcomes or saving costs are, are actually doing that. And so there's this enormous disconnect between expectations from investors and what companies are actually proving that they can do in improving outcomes, reducing total cost of care, improving member experience, and I'll add improving on the provider experience as well. There's very little data to support that. I understand why it's hard to convince a board and institutional investors that their money should be spent on doing research and researches can be very inefficient long lead time to get any data out. It's unclear if that data, if those data will actually help support some of the marketing activities. There's, there's a lot of risk to that, but it's also very doable. You know, I have portfolio companies that have invested pretty meaningful resources in research. I've got a company called Applied VR. They have five randomized controlled trials, six randomized controlled trials now actually reaffirming a pretty meaningful effect size. There's another business Cognoa I've invested in that also pretty significant investment research. The distinction though is those are digital therapeutic or digital diagnostic businesses and they have to have research in order to get FDA approval. But the tech-enabled service businesses don't depend on FDA approval because they're not a drug or a device. There isn't that regulatory pressure. And I don't want to add regulatory pressure to companies, but I do think that there is a competitive advantage to be had for those companies that do the research and have the proof to reaffirm that their marketing claims are in fact supported by peer-reviewed research. I do think that may actually potentially bring the valuations of companies kind of regressing to a mean and perhaps not be as sky high because I don't think companies will sustainably be able to prove in the current state what their future earning potential could be, just that correlation might be off. So it's a fine balance, but I, I do think it's important that we, we get some of these, you know, as much as I want my portfolio company's valuations to skyrocket, it, it needs to be sustainable and reasonable, and it needs to be grounded on hard data, not just investor speculation to future theoretical earnings. Right. And there's also 
this feels dangerous because there's an opportunity cost to investing in the wrong or perhaps adjacent solutions today that aren't actually advancing healthcare forward that we as a society are going to be bearing. So hopefully people are going to think a little bit beyond themselves or their portfolios and, and start taking this problem seriously. Last question on the innovation landscape. So two areas we've discussed as areas of interest for Medicaid innovation are PACE and special needs children's plans. Could you walk the audience through why you think there are big opportunities for tech to play a role here? You bet. Both the PACE program, Program for All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly, as well as plans that provide insurance coverage for children with special health care needs, they benefit from having quite generous premiums relative to premiums for folks that don't have as much medical complexity. Both types of plans, for the most part, and, and not just plans, but like provider offerings, they are largely void of any technology innovation. And therefore, there are a lot of inefficiencies. And the populations have a lot of needs and are populations that have some interesting volume to them. And so with PACE, we've started to see some innovation in this space with some private equity-backed and venture capital-backed technology-enabled service businesses. I believe we'll start to see more. The National PACE Association, with support from the Hartford Foundation, has this PACE 2.0 initiative where they're trying to not just have existing PACE programs grow, but bring new PACE programs online. And with 15 million or so duels, there are a lot of folks that could benefit from PACE with uh, PACE Benny potentially getting a three to $4,000 per member per month premium. That's a lot of dollars to play with. And that do- those dollars could be spent on primary care. They could be spent on tech. They could spend on meals, home delivered meals, transportation, et cetera. There's just so much flexibility there. With plans or services for children with special health care needs, it's a population that my own exposure, where I trained at Boston Children's and I attended Children's in DC, I've had this glimpse into an interesting funnel of patients whereby there's a relatively high volume of patients coming in from the Middle East. Those patients will have their country's government pay full cash, full sticker price for healthcare. They'll come through their embassy in DC and then they'll get routed up to Boston or CHOP in Philly or they'll come to, to us at Children's. And they're paying straight cash for these kids' care where they could be two, three times more, even more than that, of what Medicaid would pay for these kids. And there is a really interesting opportunity to not have hospital-driven care for these children, but rather have community-driven care, much like has happened for adult populations with disabilities and is increasingly happening with this whole push over the last decade and a half, two decades of so-called rebalancing. So rebalancing from institutional care predominantly to community-based care predominantly. If we were to do that level of prioritization of care for children with special health care needs from institutional care, whether it's hospital or, or SNF for kids, to the community setting, we could offer care in a much lower cost environment. We could offer care that's much more patient and family-centric. We could do it in a way where we take not even the you know full sticker price tradition of traditional care for these kids, but even discounted price, save the whole system money, save state Medicaid programs money, state, save sovereign funds money. And then these kids would most likely have better outcomes because they're not being shuttled into the hospital all the time. And so 
it would be fascinating to have what we're seeing in the early days of tech-enabled pace now apply to tech-enabled plan and provider full-stack offerings that are tech-enabled for children with special health care needs. Wow. And just for audience context, could you spitball what roughly a managed Medicaid PMPM rate would be? I know it's very dependent on market, but... Sure. I think if you look at a, a child that doesn't have special health care needs, a typical kiddo's plan that was reimbursing for the care of one of those kiddos, that would be, let's call it like a $300 to $500 PMPM. Kid with special health care needs could have a premium that is potentially $1,200 to $1,500 per member per month. And on so, the PACE side, you mentioned PACE 2.0 is roughly going to be in the $3,000 PMPM range. What, oh, and that's where it is now. That, that's oh, where those premiums are now. So if you take a single comorbidity Medicare beneficiary, their per member per month premium for their care will be somewhere in the tune of like $800. There so are $800. So PACE is more than three times that for the monthly right. premium. And these are averages, right? But it, I mean, there's a lot more money to play with. And I don't want to detract from funding for PACE, but PACE doesn't even need to be funded that high for margins to be pretty healthy. So I don't think PACE will have a reduction in funding. I think it's appropriate to keep it where it is, at least for now. But there's a lot of opportunity. And ultimately, I, mean, I conclude with saying shifting the system even more aggressively towards value-based payment and then putting risk on the solution providers. And this is where a technology-enabled service provider is positioned really succeed, let them carry the financial risk. And if they can get subcapitated to a health plan, or if they are themselves a tech-enabled plan, that's where really interesting alignment between outcomes, savings, and experience will happen. Yeah, interesting you you bring up payment model alignment because I'd love to spend the next segment of the discussion talking about your career in policy. So not only have you had a robust career as a founder that has successfully exited a company now as an angel investor, but you also were the chief medical officer of the U.S. Medicaid program and worked within the administration a few years ago to spearhead Medicaid strategy all over the country. And at that time in 2017, you were called a hero for a very politically costly move to speak out against your boss's plans at that time to repeal and replace Obamacare. So now it's funny to shift forward four years and it seems like knock on wood, the ACA is going to be safe and those challenges are largely behind us. The mm-hmm. pandemic has highlighted that conservative states are even interested in Medicaid expansion and, and protecting some of these benefits for their residents. So what do you see as the next domains of innovation that CMS and HHS ought to be tackling in the next four years? Oh, man. Um, What's on your wish list? I think what has to happen is a simultaneous focus on equitably improving outcomes and doing it in a sustainable way. Medicare, unless drastic changes happen, will run out of money by the end of 2024. That is not a lot of time. Also, we have health disparities that have always existed, but in 2020 were perpetuated so starkly where average life expectancy in the U.S. dropped by a year. If you're a black male, it dropped by three years. I mean, it is profound. And so we've got a lot of issues to tackle and 
in order to tackle them, we have to do it in a sustainable way. We have to do that equitably. I'm excited to hear in speaking with colleagues on the Biden transition team and speaking with incoming political leaders that equity focus is a priority. In fact, that's the only priority that I'm consistently hearing. What I'm not hearing is how will all of those equitable improvements be happening in a sustainable way? And it's nuanced and, and I think warrants perhaps a podcast episode in and of itself. But you know, short of it is there has to be a substantial reinvestment in the infrastructure of CMS, most notably the people within CMS, to enable the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to once again become a learning organization. There has been very significant regression over the past four years, an enormous divestment in building the capabilities of the staff and the capacity of the staff that work at CMS. There's been a lot of brain drain. We need to get the folks that are still at CMS to be empowered to evolve more efficiently with the times, with value-based payment, with technology-forward innovation. And then we need to bring new blood in as well. Some of that is happening. We're seeing a big influx of folks into the United States Digital Services Program. We're starting, I'm certainly personally seeing a lot of clinicians that are reaching out to me, wanting to get plugged in with folks at CMS, which I am, which is great, bringing more medical officers back. But we have to make sure that the investment is not just an investment in these four years, that the investment is longitudinally well beyond any one administration. And if there's a change management competence within CMS, and um, there's less of a mentality of just keep the train on the tracks, which is super important. We can't just keep the train on the tracks because there's a cliff to the tracks that's coming up in 2024, and there are no more tracks after that. So we can keep the train on the tracks for three more years, chugging along, and Medicare payments will keep happening, but then there just will be no more program. So that's a, that's a really tough balance to strike. And I think it's doable. It's definitely doable. It'll just require a pretty meaningful and bold investment within CMS. And then some very strategically sound, non-politically driven objectives and key results to be set, which is not typical that that combination of things happen. So when you say there's agreement that we need to tackle equity, but there is an agreement on how to do so sustainably. What tactically does that mean? What are some of the concerns you have on the sustainability front other than Medicare will be insolvent by 2024? I mean, that's just Medicare numbers, right? Medicaid numbers, it's variable because it's state dependent. ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, created some very compelling incentives for more states to expand Medicaid, which is probably the single most high yield policy intervention that could happen to improve equity. So I would just kind of leave it there, right? (laughs) If if we were to do nothing else, just help states or try to find ways to convince the 12 holdout states to expand Medicaid, and that would be pretty meaningful. In terms of paths to sustainability, it really comes down to shifting towards value-based payment and getting as much of payment to category four alternative payment models, you know, full risk bearing as much as possible. That can be challenging, especially when you have folks that are duals and you have some data sharing challenges that currently exist. It's also, it's a challenge where, you know, there's CMS, what CMS can do, but so much of healthcare, at least half is reimbursed by employer-sponsored insurance. And so 
there's a paradigm shift that has to happen there as well. Otherwise, you know, Medicare trust fund running out is one thing, but the overall American healthcare system isn't just dependent on Medicare or Medicaid. It's also what employers are doing. And most of the mindset with employer-sponsored insurance is, well, let's just stay at trend or slightly be better than trend. But it's still trend. Trend is still costs going up, and that's not sustainable. Some specific tactical considerations. I mean, broadly, I mentioned shift towards value-based payment, specifically value-based payment for high-cost drugs, biologics, the genetic gene-based therapies. There's a lot of innovation opportunity there. I think there's some really interesting disruption opportunity in the PBM space. That probably would require some regulatory catalysts. This administration, once COVID is really at a steady state and better controlled, I think that's probably going to be a big next area of focus. I would say those are probably some of the lower hanging fruit opportunities to ensure sustainability in the program. Well, actually, let me back up and add one more thing. (laughs) Probably the biggest elephant in the room. The monopolies that hospitals have and the prices that they set that handcuff insurers' ability to move away from using those hospitals or health systems. I think if we could have a legislative or regulatory fix to that, that would actually be a very meaningful opportunity to improve sustainability. And there will be a paper coming out on that probably in the next few months that a couple of my colleagues and I are writing. But that's a space that I think is super interesting and probably be doing some advocacy in that space. I'm glad you brought that up. I was about to say that one of the big problems in healthcare is the cross-subsidization that happens because providers are able to negotiate higher prices with commercial payers to then subsidize for largely government beneficiary care or uncompensated care. And then the private sector then creates all these cool tech platforms to then pass that subsidy back to the underserved, like companies like Unitas, et cetera. So very, very messy. Hopefully we will have some of these paradigm shifts. Although the way you phrased it, I'm not going to lie. It seems the inertia of the public sector or just generally U.S. healthcare broadly makes it feel like some of these changes might not be possible. And one thing I wanted to double click on quickly was around value-based payment shifts in Medicaid. So Mm. for the audience, I think a lot of folks might be familiar with CMMI, which runs all of CMS's payment innovation models. A lot of those models are focused on Medicare with some focus on Medicaid, perhaps with direct contracting or waiver programs, but that leaves the onus on states and results in some of the more progressive forward-thinking or densely populated states taking on more of the innovation versus rural areas or poor poorer states or less equitable states. So do you think there needs to be a material shift in how Medicaid innovation is structured at the federal level? And what would that look like? I don't think that there will be a material shift. And there really can't be because the nature of the Medicaid program and how it's federated with the central government serving as an accountability mechanism, but really the states are the drivers of innovation, or in some cases, states can be the drivers of some negligent policymaking. Nevertheless, it's the way the program is set up. And it's actually like a very elegant setup. And I think that there is very significant risk in the federal government trying to impose so-called innovation upon the states, because if the state doesn't want to do it, they're going to find a way to not do it. We're also, I mean, it's basically applying human-centered design principles to policymaking. You don't want to 
force your customer to go do something. You want the customer to come to you and want what you're offering them. Ideally, that is the way in which the federal government center for Medicaid and CHIP services interacts with state Medicaid programs. There are certainly situations where certain states and state legislatures in particular will require that their state Medicaid program do things that, frankly, are just bad for public health. And in that scenario, you need CMCS to step in and offer some error proofing or safety, safety checks to policy. But I do think that there are ways to collaboratively come up with innovative policy that meet local needs for the most part. And interestingly, almost all Medicaid leaders at the state level are genuinely care and prioritize Medicaid beneficiaries and the supply chain serving them. They're usually not the culprit. It's the state legislatures and in some cases the state governors that can be pretty misguided and have some unfortunate views often driven by systemic racism that then impose those requirements on state Medicaid programs. And so as long as those risks are mitigated with a little bit of accountability from the feds, I would say that the federal government should be there to support state innovation when the state is ready to innovate. It's interesting you say that this is an elegant system of checks and balances because if anything, over the last year, it seems like maybe having a stronger hand from the government might have helped us avoid the scenario that we were perhaps placated yeah. a little bit. But yeah. um, it's probably for the I best agree. that we do have the checks and balances. I agree completely. I agree. Yeah. For public health, emergency, preparedness, strong central government role, absolutely essential for course correcting at the margins. That's where you want the states to be the drivers of innovation. Last question for you around your personal leadership story. So you've led through several crises, phases of intense growth, whether it's through your companies or your venture arm or being a policy leader. Could you walk us through a few principles that you use to guide you through challenging times? Sure. Um, I think the first place to start is a concept that Ben Horowitz described, which is the notion of um, peacetime and wartime CEO. That's a construct that I never had like elegantly summarized until I was out of my most recent wartime CEO opportunity. But I, I think as a metaphor, it's wonderful. And, and, and the construct is basically when an organization is not facing an existential threat to existence, when it's basically in just growth mode, that's where you want to be a servant leader. You want to empower your direct reports to be their best selves, that you're there to eliminate their barriers to fulfilling their best selves. That's the peacetime CEO. A wartime CEO is a CEO that has an organization that is a threat to its survival, and there isn't the luxury of time to be able to enable your direct reports to fail their way through learning. And instead, there has to be incredibly precise and very narrow objectives that are distributed throughout the enterprise in an authoritarian way, not an authoritative way. It's like authoritarian parenting as opposed to authoritative parenting. You can be a wartime CEO and still have you know, dignity and respect and be kind to people. It's just less wiggle room for the coaching. Uh, not as much time for the coaching and not as much time for people to uh, be left to their devices to go figure it out. It has to be a little bit more prescriptive. So I think that's probably the most salient leadership principle. And uh, outside of that, I mean, there's 
some of the folks literature that I, I really appreciate. I mean, Jim Collins' work has always been really helpful around the hedgehog concept, having a clear vision, knowing what an organization is the best in the world at doing, understanding the sustainability engine and the whole notion of level five leadership. Again, level five leadership mostly is for applicable to peacetime CEOs. The literature around lean management, incredibly helpful. And there's so many aspects of that, but I think the rigor around standard work and making sure that that's actually followed and incorporated into culture and processes and that all those tactics are super helpful. And I mean, there's so many other things that really it's, it's context dependent and it depends what type of wartime or peacetime we're talking about. It depends on the nature of the organization, where it is in this journey and constantly being, be learning, right? Always reading books, always learning from peers, from mentors, and hopefully you leave the place uh, nicer than when you got there. Great way to end the conversation. I certainly am learning a lot from <laughs> you as my mentor through this conversation. Each of these little topics could have been their own hour-long conversation. So appreciate you making the time and so eloquently summarizing some of the problems and opportunities facing the Medicaid program and U.S. healthcare. Thank you. I appreciate it.